Hey there, welcome to another episode of DSR. I'm your host, Angel Donovan. Why do you have sex? This sounds like a really silly question, but after this episode, I think you're going to be thinking differently about it. It's likely your perception of what is normal for sex is not necessarily what's really going on out there in the world. The reality of our sexual lives, the sex people are really having in the world, in our communities, around us, is often exaggerated or hidden in many ways. That becomes a problem when we compare ourselves to the standards that we've learned from these sources. We're judging ourselves on these standards by what we think is going on in the rest of the world with our friends, the media, the people we look up to, TV shows, and so on. We compare ourselves to false standards, ones we've learned from others, and not standards that are chosen because they actually contribute to our own happiness and satisfaction. In today's episode, we're going to look at some practical examples of this from someone who's been doing research in this area. And as we walk through the details of everything outside us that influences how we think and act about sex, I'd encourage you to think about how your approach to sex has worked out for you so far. Are you a slave to your sexuality or does your sexuality really contribute to the quality of you and your partner's life for that matter? I've personally taken both paths and I know which one has worked out better for me. This is more of a mental game episode, and I know some of you may want to brush over it because you're looking for the quick takeaways. But remember, the end game is happiness. And I think this episode will be really valuable to many of you as you pursue that goal to be better informed about what's going to lead to the actual happiness for yourself. At this point, I've recorded hundreds and hundreds of hours of interviews with amazing guests on this show. So I can see how that would be a little bit overwhelming if you want to get started and you're new to us. So if you want to get started in a more summarized approach of some of the top things, go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash get top 13 and you can download an audio there. One of my coaches and I talk about the top 13 pieces of advice we've come across over the last 15 years. So great takeaways to start with there. Now, today's guest is Rachel Hills. She is the author of the recent book, The Sex Myth, The Gap Between Our Fantasies and the Reality, for which she carried out research over many, many years, interviewing more than 200 men and women about the details of their sex lives and spending many months combing through research journals to pull out scientific research on the topic. Rachel also has a really successful blog with over 100,000 subscribers, which is named Musings of an Inappropriate Woman. If you'd like to get the show notes with all of the links to everything we talk about in the show, you can go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash podcast and go to the episode there and you'll find everything there. You can also get that in your email inbox if you go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash newsletter. Now, please enjoy this discussion about the sex myth and what it means to all of our lives with Rachel Hills. I'm Angel Donovan. And this is the Dating Skills Podcast. This is a 14-year ongoing mission to discover the truth about what works in dating, sex, and relationships. To become a better man. Join me as I leave no stone unturned. Chase down every expert, role model, and mentor with insights to get us to that goal as fast as possible. This show is about bringing you the best of that information so that you can take it in change your life for the better, step-by-step, episode-by-episode. Rachel, thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you so much for having me, Angel. 
Yeah, so I wanted to uh, dive straight into what triggered your interest in this topic, and the topic of your book, how it got started and how it developed, because it's, it's quite a unique topic. Yeah, well, I started thinking about the ideas in the sex myth almost 10 years ago now, around 2007. And this was a time in which the media was in this kind of state of fevered fascination around what was known as hooking up and raunch culture, or to put it another way, this idea that uh, people and young people in particular were having more sex than ever before and doing it in these kinds of outrageous and allegedly terrible ways. And firstly, this was a, a kind of media narrative that frustrated me, partly because of the undercurrent that sex was bad and partly because it just bore no relationship to what I as a then young person was experiencing or anybody I knew. But secondly, I was motivated to write the book because at that point in my life, sex was something that I was personally very insecure about. I was a virgin into my 20s and that made me feel very kind of kind of secretly undesirable and secretly lacking. And I'd always loved books that kind of put personal experiences into sociological or cultural contexts that explain kind of how what we felt fit into a bigger social picture. And there was no such book that addressed sex in that way, or at least to my satisfaction. So I decided I wanted to write one. Excellent. It's uh, pretty much all, all the best books, are, they kind of come from our own I know, insecurities, little projects, little personal projects and stuff to uh, resolve problems or things in our lives. So I always find uh, they end up being the most interesting things. Exactly. What kind of research did you do for the book? Like, who did you speak to? What kind of reading did you did? Um, well, I did a lot of research because obviously, I guess, since I came up with the idea in 2007 and then the book didn't come out until 2015. I did part of my research and the part that people tend to be most interested in were the interviews that I did. My background is as a journalist. And although I took a kind of academic approach to the sex myth, I kind of used my journalistic skills as well. And I interviewed around 200 people about their sex lives and not just their sex lives, but I guess the beliefs that they held around sex. So how they felt they were supposed to be and where those ideas were coming from. And those people tended to be on the younger end of the equation. They were mostly in their 20s, some 30-somethings, some teenagers, and they were from across the English-speaking world. In addition to that, I spent many years hanging out in library stacks at universities, reading a whole bunch of journal articles and books that looked at this idea of how our ideas about sex are shaped by society and culture and um, kind of synthesized all of those together with the interviews to create the book. Excellent, excellent. How did you reach out to the people you managed to interview? I used the internet for a lot of it. I did multiple kind of online call-outs of at the very beginning, I was using youth mailing lists. This is when I was doing the research in an academic context. And then after I got the book deal, I was using uh, Twitter, Tumblr. People were sharing my links on their own kind of Facebook pages, their own blogs, etc. And that led to far more people contacting me than I would ever have time to or would be useful to from a research perspective to interview. I think I had about a thousand people contact me all up. Okay. And then you selected a, a fifth of them, 200. Okay. Yeah. Did you have any, like, were there any criteria or anything? Like, or you just didn't, I mean, obviously you didn't have time to maybe interview <laughs> yeah. a thousand people. Well, at the very beginning, I remember particularly when I did my US call out and a couple of big blogs shared it. 
I got, I think at first a whole bunch of emails started coming through, maybe 80 came through in an hour. And I thought, oh, this is really good. And then I think about five or 600 came through in the space of 24 or 48 hours. And this is obviously so many emails to read. So I guess I, in that kind of initial selection, I was reading the first emails that came through and from my journalistic perspective, selecting people who had interesting stories attached to it. So when people would email me, they would explain why they wanted to be interviewed. And then later on, as I was traveling around doing my second round of interviews, because I had such a kind of broad swathe of interviewees to pick from, I would just go to my email inbox and I would search the name of the city I was going to or the name of the state I was going to. And then I would look to see who was located there. And I would particularly in that case kind of interview for diversity. Uh, So I would get a lot of women contacting me. So if someone was a man, I'd then be more likely to reach out to them. Or if somebody was not white, I'd be more likely to reach out to them, for example. So kind of correcting for the groups that would be overrepresented. Yeah, yeah, excellent. So in terms of what your own lifestyle, your social lifestyle and your relationships and so on, what kind of lifestyle do you have today in this in this context? How do you fit into your the world of your book and so on? Uh, well, sexually and romantically speaking, I'm no longer in the position I was when I started the book. So I have had sex now. So that's good. Um, I'm also now married. So I guess I'm, I'm a heterosexual married person who has sex. <laughs> yeah. And I don't particularly identify with any sexual subcultures. So I don't identify as kinky or poly, for example, but I'm also not opposed to those things. So I'm not, I don't identify as specifically not those things. Does that make sense? I see them as kind of an array of possibilities that one could be in the future if they wanted to be. Right, right. So would you call it a kind of sex positive? Yeah, I think I think I'm sex positive in the sense that I want people to be able to have whatever kinds of sex lives are right for them. Right. And um, I don't hold any particular stigmas against people who are doing different things from me. Excellent. Excellent. It's always helpful to get the context of uh, the different people who come on the show because we just get such a variety. So it's always interesting to understand a little bit from the person where they're coming from. Yeah. And, and how they're leading their life and so on. I think it helps the audience to get things. So let's dive into it. Why do we have sex? Why do we have sex? I mean, it's, I think there have been other books written on that. I mean, we have sex partly because it's fun and it feels good, or hopefully it does. And I think we have sex because for the most part, we are biologically programmed to want to have it. You know, the fact that we experience pleasure in sex is tied to the fact that our genitals help us reproduce. It's good that we most, for the most part, people really enjoy it. But in in my book, as I guess I've indicated previously in our conversation, I look at the social forces that shape not just why we want to have sex, but also the way in which we want to have it. Uh, So I believe that human beings are deeply social animals, and this is as fundamental to the way that we engage particularly in the ways in which we engage with each other as our biological desire to have sex. And that accordingly, the way in which we want to have sex and um, the reasons we want to have sex are shaped by the particular standards that exist around sexuality at any given time. So in our society right now, and to some degree throughout history, being sexual in a particular way or in today's society, being somebody who is sexually active, who is to some degree sexually adventurous, who both desires a lot of sex and is highly desired by other people, is wrapped up in a whole bunch of sexual status. 
And that means that having sex doesn't just feel good biologically, it also feels good emotionally as well. Having sex is like a form of affirmation. It makes us feel attractive. It makes us, it affirms that we are worthy. It affirms that we are successful. So our desire to be sexual creatures isn't just this pleasure and biological thing. It's also tied up with our self-esteem and self-image. Excellent. Thank you for that. That brings it all into the light. Could you give us some examples, like some of the good interviews where there were clear examples of some of the influences of uh, sexual behavior that were more social, you know, that were coming from more of the external environment that you came across? Sure. I mean, I think that came through with most of the people that I interviewed. And sometimes it would come through in really positive ways. So I remember there was a young woman I interviewed who, who talks about how she was in the math club in high school. So she felt like a bit of a nerd, uh, but she was also sexually active. So she had a boyfriend, she was having sex and how this made her feel, I think she uses the word, like a bit of a vixen. It made her feel like she had this cool little secret that she was the only person in the math club that wasn't a virgin. So that's kind of a positive way in which these social attributes that we tie to sex make someone feel good about themselves. And then to give a kind of counterexample, there was a young man named Henry who I interviewed from the UK, who was, I think, 23 when I first spoke to him, and he was not sexually active, and he felt very bad about himself. He felt like this meant that he was a loser and that he was out of step with uh, what everybody else around him was experiencing. He felt like the fact that he wasn't sexually active demonstrated this kind of deep defect about who he was. And the fact that he wasn't sexually active at 23 meant that he would never have sex ever because of the fact that the book took me such a long time to write. I first interviewed him in 2012. I know that he did actually then have sex, I think, by 2013. So it wasn't a permanent state for him that he assumed that it was. It was just one year, in fact. <laughs> well, you know, it was 23 years, right? Um, right. Or, you know, it was seven years, maybe, if, if you think about if he started feeling this way when he was 16. Oh, oh I see. I see what you mean. Mm. Okay. All right. All right. Great. Mm. Uh, were there any examples of guys who were very sexual active and who you interviewed to get some idea of their influences? I bring that up specifically because I often get emails from guys who are, I would say, very sexually active in mm. terms of the number of people they've, they've slept with by the age of, say, 21. So say they've slept with 20 people or 15 people or so on. And most of these emails are about them feeling insecure about that and feeling that their, I don't know, their sexual prowess or whatever isn't really up to the mark. So I was just wondering if you've got one of those types of contexts you came across. That's so interesting. I'd love to hear more about that from you. Um, I did hear from, I did speak to a few men who were in that position, who were in their early 20s and had had, or, you know, in one case, one of the guys was about 30 and they'd had um, a large number of partners, say between 20 and 40. Yeah. Um, and they, they didn't tend to express that same kind of insecurity. They tended to feel good about that because they were aligning with the image of what we as a culture are told men are supposed to do. They're, they're aligning with the image of kind of successful masculinity. So one of these guys I interviewed, Nate, I think he was about 21 and he was in the U.S., and I think he'd had sex with somewhere around um, 20 women. And this was something that it kind of, he felt socially good about it. It pumped up his self-esteem. But I think it pumped up his self-esteem, not just in terms of his desirability with women, 
but in terms of his coolness with other men. But I think where he felt a bit of a contradiction with that is that even though he enjoyed the physical act of sex, he enjoyed being able to pick up, he also felt like he was he felt like in order to do that, he had to be a bit of an asshole. And so there was this kind of moral quandary for him. Mm. So he didn't have to be an asshole in order to get laid full stop because, of course, you can be a perfectly nice person and do that. But he felt like the activities that gave him status, so being able to pick up a woman and then treat her like crap the next day, the things that made him look cool to his mates were not the things that made him feel good about himself as a person. And he also said that somewhere along down the line, I think in his third year of university, he met a woman who he did really like as a person as well. And he's like, look, there are lots of girls who are attractive to have sex with, but it's nicer to have sex with one who you also, in whose company you also enjoy as a human being. Yeah. So he, he did okay in that relationship. He adjusted to it. Yeah. He adjusted to it really well. And when I interviewed him, that relationship had ended and he was having a bit of casual sex again, but he didn't personally find it as fulfilling as the sex he'd had when he was in a relationship. Right. So what was the drive behind uh, the behaviors that he didn't like in himself and the ones where he was acting more of an asshole, I don't know, picking up, dropping girls, or it was that, there's a specific activity, was it hooking up with a girl and immediately dropping her? Or what was it that he specifically reacted to negatively? What was the, 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 I think it was, I'm just looking at the part in the book because I did so many interviews yeah. and I don't remember exactly every detail. I think it was the fact that it, it made him feel like an asshole and it was the fact that I guess that he was using being an asshole as a hookup strategy. That's the phrase that he uses. And I guess when you're doing that, because so often sex and relationships are treated like a game and they're so often presented as a game, sometimes literally so, in the book of the same title, it can feel fun when you're playing the game, but it didn't feel fun when he started thinking of those girls as being human beings. I think he there was a quote where he said, um, you know, that's going to be someone's mom someday which to some degree is quite a conservative attitude to have because her value doesn't just lie in the fact that she'll be someone's mum someday. <laughs> her value lies in right now as well. But, yeah, the, this distinction between seeing a woman as a sex object and seeing a woman as a three-dimensional human being. Yeah. So i found over the years that the women who are more insecure tend to respond better to the being an asshole kind of game. <laughs> yeah, that, that may be so. I think there is some truth to that. And when I think back to the insecurities that I had in my early 20s when I wasn't sexually active and how I interpreted this as being my kind of lack of desirability, in retrospect, even though that was something I was very insecure about, I also wonder if perhaps it was also a reflection of some kind of internal confidence that even though I would have preferred to be having sex than not having sex, I at least had the confidence not to have sex with people who I didn't like or with people who were being assholes to me. Like I had this very kind of strong asshole detector. Okay, that's cool. <laughs> so that's an interesting line there with people uh, having the confidence to, I think in your book you have examples of where people sleep with uh, or hook up with people that they're not necessarily that attracted to. Yes. And they're doing it for other reasons. Could you dig a little bit into that? Sure. So another one of the guys I interviewed who 
you know, he wasn't having tons of sex. I think he'd, so he wasn't like hooking up constantly or anything, but he'd, he was, he'd gone through a period in which he had had a lot of hookups. So he was a British guy who, when he was at university, lived in a house full of other men. And one of the ways in which they would bond with each other was by kind of competing over how many girls they could have sex with and um, competing over how hot those women were as well. And he, you know, as as many British men do, he had a fantastic sense of humor. And um, he was saying, you know, most of the time I wasn't actually picking up a lot of women. Most of the time I'd be going out and trying to pick them up and failing. But there was a period of a few months in which he racked up maybe five, six, seven sexual partners in that period. So he was having a bit of casual sex then. And uh, he told me this story of one time when, you know, he was really into this whole idea of the girl hunt, picking up the woman. And then he got back home afterwards to have sex with her. And he realized that he didn't actually want to have sex with her. He just Mm. wanted the thrill of being able to pick her up. Right. The thrill of getting her home and knowing he can have sex with her. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The validation aspect of it, I guess. And And maybe a point for his game. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. A point for his game. And in relation to my point about Nate's comment before being conservative, I think a point I missed was that his point about the girl being somebody's mom someday being conservative isn't just that it's relying on her being a mom, but it's that it's okay to have sex with lots of people and to treat them well. Like you, you don't need to treat people like crap in order to be having a lot of sex. It's perfectly possible to have lots of sexual partners and to be having fun with them all and to be being respectful. Yeah, exactly. There have been different strategies which have reigned over the last 15 years and have been popularized. And some of them have been uh, more manipulative and more asshole, if we want to call it the asshole approach or whatever, orientated. And then there's others that have been more orientated to, to a more balanced view. So I can see there's, there's a whole bunch of guys that will have followed the, the asshole route. Or yeah. Call it for, for that. And then what I find is, I mean, they either stick with that or at one point they, they kind of make this transition that like you described the guy called Nate. Yes. Where they get fed up of it or maybe they have a relationship with a girl and you know they see how that's not working for them. I think often what happens is it ends up sabotaging the relationship they have with a girl when they do decide to have a relationship with her. And uh, they kind of end up getting some feedback from that relationship when she leaves them and so on, that maybe this isn't a strategy that's going to work for them in terms of satisfaction and fulfillment uh, longer term. So they kind of need that feedback, which they don't get from a one night stand, of course. Yeah. um, Because it's a quick thing. And once you slept with someone, it's kind of over um, and they don't really get the, the immediate feedback. No. And does that tie to what you were saying before about some men who contact you saying that even though they've had a lot of partners, they don't necessarily feel like they're very good at sex? Well, I noted another quote in your book. There's a whole bunch of interesting quotes uh, for different people in your book. But another one was from a girl. She said, the thing about when you start accumulating sex for its own sake is that the exercise of it is not that sexual. Sometimes having this kind of sex, this shopping kind of sex is based in insecurities for me and my attractive insecurities. So what I felt was that that's pretty similar to uh, a fair number of the guys who are racking up bigger numbers. Yeah. I know a lot of the guys I've, I've known and related to over time. One guy asked me, he's, he's, he's quite well known, an author, he asked me when I first met him, what's your score? And what he meant was how many girls I'd slept with. Yeah. Which is the first time I'd had that question asked of me. Um, the score I gave was going <laughs> to um, feed into the evaluation of how I was doing and so on. So, you know, I think there's a lot of that 
been going on. And I did rack up a lot of numbers myself, and I found that a lot of it became the experience of sex wasn't that great, uh, and it was kind of deteriorating over time. Another quote I saw in your book was from another girl where she was saying, I can always tell the guys who've had lots of casual sex, but they haven't had relationships yes. because they're less experienced with, with sex in general, which is something I believe in too, because like pretty much I think everyone admits that the first night having sex or one night stands and so on is never as good as the second time, the third time and, and so on as you kind of explore each other's sexuality and so on. Yes. And for women in particular, there's this uh, clear link between the number of times you've had sex with somebody and the likelihood that you will orgasm from that sex. And that's largely because of getting to know each other's bodies and knowing how to produce pleasure, but then also about being able to speak openly and honestly about the things that give you pleasure and being able to engage in those acts. And I guess yeah. to be uh, more blunt about that, I mean that men are more likely to have oral sex with women that they've hooked up with on multiple occasions or that they're in a relationship with. And also that women are more likely to either ask for or just give themselves clitoral stimulation, which is going to help their ability to orgasm. Right. Yeah. Because I think most people aren't very assertive about their own sexual needs if it's just a one night casual hookup. Yes. Right? They tend to go with their defaults. Uh, standards or whatever they think those are instead of talking about their own uh, sexual needs, desires, identities, which may be different yeah. uh, from that because they, they feel insecure about talking with someone they don't really know that well about these kind of things. So one of the big things, the big premise, it's kind of in the title of your book is that there's a big gap between our fantasies and the reality. What does that mean? Yeah, so I'm not talking about individual fantasies in that title, although I'm sure that for most people, or for many people at least, there is a gap between what we fantasize about and what we do, or even in some cases, what we practically want when it comes to sex. Instead, I'm talking about the cultural fantasy we're told about sex, um, which I think can be particularly potent for men in some ways. So this idea that sexuality is kind of constantly available in this kind of smorgasbord, this idea that uh, everybody is not just having sex, but having kind of really amazing, orgasmic, adventurous sex. And uh, this idea that if you're not doing that, then, then that there is something kind of lacking in you. And that's the gap that I'm talking about, the gap between the ideal that we're presented when it comes to sex. And then, of course, very, very many and varied ways in which people mm. experience that. Yeah. So it's like the perception, perception versus what's actually happening, the truth, reality. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So I know that you talk, you, I mean, you were just telling me before we, we started that you talk to people about the, what they, people consider normal for sex. What are the perceptions of, of sex today? So could you talk about a little bit about like where you think people are you know, in your discussions and everything from the research on the book and also like in your talks? Like where do people think the normal sex life is and, and what the norms are and what the standards are? Uh, I mean, the norm is kind of both oppressive and kind of multifaceted at the same time. I think probably one of the major norms and assumptions is that people are sexually active unless stated otherwise. I think that whether you're in a, if you're in a relationship, it's expected that you will be having sex on a regular basis. And, you know, how regular that is defined will differ from person to person. But I've met people who say, I can't believe that the average couple only has sex three times a week. I would be devastated if I had it less than five. And of course, uh, maybe not, of course, perhaps surprisingly would be a better rejoinder there. Studies show that actually the average couple has less than 
sex less than three times a week. So there's this assumption of sexual ubiquity. If you're in a relationship, it's a reflection of how well your relationship is going. And if you're single, it's a reflection of how desirable you are, how much fun you're having, how successful you are in your ability to pick up other people. So I think the assumption of sexual ubiquity is a big one. I think it's almost the main one. I mean, there are a whole bunch of other assumptions around this idea that people are straight unless said otherwise. And a lot of them are contradictory. The idea that on the one hand, you want to be adventurous. You don't want to be vanilla. You want to have some kind of kink. But then on the other hand, that if you are kinky, there's also an assumption from some quarters that that's disgusting. The assumption that that a good loving relationship should be monogamous, but also the assumption that monogamy is boring. So a lot of them do kind of contradict each other to some degree. So they're different groups. I mean, that sounds like there's a bit of variety in, in society. Yeah, there is a bit of variety in society, uh, which was, is an unintentional rhyme there. Mm. But, okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that for people in, in whatever position they're in in society, they're still feeling a kind of oppressive norm that they should be a certain way. And I guess what, what I was seeing amongst the people I interviewed was that the so-called progressive norms, so the idea that you should be sexually active, you should be comfortable with casual sex, you should be, as Dan Savage puts it, good giving and game, or up for doing absolutely anything, were more the pressures that the men and women I spoke to seemed to be impacted by, rather than, say, the idea that you should remain a virgin until you're married, or the idea that um, you should be monogamous. Okay, great. Where, where would you say the clearest examples of a gap, the biggest gaps between people's perceptions and what's actually going on around them? One of my favorite examples of the gap is actually a statistical one. It's an American sociologist named uh, Michael Kimmel, who does a lot of research into masculinity, and he travels to a lot of campuses as well. And in, when he was researching his book, Guyland, he started asking men on the campuses he visited uh, what percentage of their peers they thought had sex on any given weekend. And the average answer that these men gave was 80%. So they assumed the four out of five men were having sex in any given week. And um, he pointed out that there was a large gap between that expectation and the fact that um, that academic studies have shown that only 80% of all undergraduate men have ever had sex. So the proportion of, of them who are having sex on any given, given weekend is much lower, especially since amongst 18 to 23-year-olds, I know that the most common number of sexual partners to have in a given year is one, and then the next most common number is zero, and then the next most common number is two. So if you're in a relationship for all of that time, maybe you will have sex every week. But if you're a single person, chances are that you're not going to be in that kind of fictitious 80%. Yeah, that's cool. So that's a male example. Is it different for women? Because I can imagine how it might be skewed differently. Um, I think that... Uh, the assumptions that women and men had were tended to be more similar than they were different. Okay. I think that in terms of the kind of metaculture, we're still sold this idea that women are supposed to be pure and that women find their status in withholding sex rather than from having it. And there's a small degree of truth to that in that I think the ideal is in some ways kind of more fraught for women. But most of the women that I spoke to aspired to be people who were desirable, who were sexually active, who were yeah. empowered in their sexuality. And that kind of equated to much the same sexual ideal as the ideal that men were aspiring to. 
Yeah, I mean, so that's, so that's a big change. Right? But, but that said, like before, you were talking about this guy who asked you what your number was, or what was the phrase that he used? He asked me what my score was. What your score was, yeah. And um, when I go to college campuses in the United States, we talk about the things you're told you should do and the things you're told you shouldn't be doing. And a phrase that comes up on these boards that we create over and over is this idea of body count, which is kind of the American female equivalent of a score. And body count, you know, there are associations with death. So it's not a very positive thing. (laughs) And so when we were putting up, often when we're putting up lists of things that people shouldn't do, it's like for women, high body count. And sometimes that's defined as being anything more than one or two, which obviously exists in complete contradiction to the ideal that women are also trying to live up to, which is that they should constantly be dating, constantly be sexually engaging with men, whether in a relationship or having sex. If you're someone who's having a lot of sex, you're probably going to get above the number of one or two reasonably quickly. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, gap around how often you're having sex and with how many partners. How about the types of sex you're having? I think that, again, particularly when I'm on campus, there are contradictions within these things. So on the one hand, a lot of the women and men, I in, probably even more so the women I interviewed than the men, would have this awareness that you want to be keeping things mixed up in order to sexually entertain your partner, that you want to be, say, trying out different positions, you want to be open to having oral sex, anal sex, kinky sex, et cetera, et cetera, in order to maintain your partner's interest. But on the other hand, and maybe this is an age gap thing with slightly younger people having not necessarily different ideals generationally, but being in a different life stage, I note that things like kink and um, anal sex and polyamory are often put up on the list of things that you're told you shouldn't do on the boards that we create. These are the things that you shouldn't do. Yes, exactly. Whereas for the slightly older people I interviewed, so the 20-somethings, they were more considered things that you definitely should be doing. Okay. All right. So 20s, they're more open to different types of sexual activity these days. And you're saying the teens, they tend to be more uh, restricted. Is that and I think that's probably because of the proximity to high school more than anything else. Yeah, I, I think yeah. it's kind of age. They're not, yeah, they're exactly. Not, it's, it's not that not they like are that a conservative generation. It's yeah. that you've just come out of an environment where in high school, for women especially, just the idea of having sex in the first place can be fraught for multitudes of reasons, whether that is slut-shaming or whether that is the risk of getting pregnant. Mm-hmm. Something I've noticed over time is... The change in perception of oral sex, anal sex, BDSM, and kink, as you said. I remember maybe you know 20 years ago, it was something that was just not as acceptable at all. It wasn't something that came up. And in discussions with the girls I was with, I remember it used to be, uh, they'd be a lot more resistant to that kind of thing. If I brought it up, there'd be a lot more resistance and just like, oh, are you into that kind of thing? And so a kind of negative judgment sometimes. Yeah. That's definitely changed uh, drastically over time. It's hard for me to, un- to know if it's an age thing. Yeah. Um, like if the younger generations are just more open to that, because I feel like some of the older generation too have now adjusted. So I can't really put my finger on it. I don't know if you come across that and you, you've seen the changes in attitudes. Uh, there do see, seem to be some kind of broader cultural shifts that are driving that. So in the case of something like oral sex, I think that the Bill Clinton scandals of the late 1990s 
probably mm. contributed to the normalization of, of that. <laughs> really cool. Um, I think that porn probably plays a big role in the normalization of anal sex. Mm. I think that when it comes to kink or at least kind of the cosmified kind of version of kink, it has a lot to do with women's magazines and to do with things like Fifty Shades of Grey. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, so the well, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey, of course, is something that's popularized. But as you said, it's like the magazines who've taken up these events and they've started to push it out afterwards. I guess they just need new content and they're like, oh, look, there's this cool book, Fifty Shades of Grey, that's popular. Let's, uh, let's do loads of articles around this subject. Yeah. But one of the interesting things I found in my research, so I spent a lot of time reading both women's and men's magazines to look at the messages that they were giving about sex, was that in women's magazines in particular, even though there was this kind of impetus for women to be quote unquote sexually adventurous, so to make sure that she was doing things that would please her partner, there was also still a stigma and taboo against um, anything that was vaguely kinky. So when they shared stories of, say, women who'd had a threesome or women who'd stripped on stage or women who'd engaged in BDSM, often the end of that story, if these were real-life tales, it'd be, and then my boyfriend broke up with me, or, and then I realised that I didn't really want that anyway. Mm. And so I think there's still this cultural narrative that these things are fun to try, but that the kind of ultimate end point should still be uh, a kind of more culturally conservative, monogamous vanilla kind of way of engaging with sex yeah it's it's like we have two standards we have a standard for our casual sex lives and then when we get when we get into a relationship i think a lot of people would judge what happened in the casual sex life uh negatively taking your example if a girl's had a threesome in some experimental years and when she has a boyfriend a bit later he's he's more likely to judge that negatively and that seems like where the perceptions come from even if perhaps he's had a, you know, a threesome in his own experimental stage yeah, I think. but I also think that there's, and I think that's a really smart observation that you've, you've made about the gap between our expectations for our casual sex lives and for our monogamous sex lives. But I also think there is this kind of selection bias in the stories that editors then choose to tell because yeah. I wrote a column for Cosmo for a year in which I interviewed both men and women about various aspects of sex. And it's not hard to find people to interview who've had a threesome and who've had a positive experience doing it. Or at least, you know, if they didn't have a positive experience, it's something more to do with the specifics of having a threesome, to say the physical challenges involved or um, the difficulty of paying attention to two partners at the same time, rather than this kind of sense of moral compromise attached to it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Is this gap between our perceptions of reality, how would you say this is like, created or overall what kind of things could people be paying more attention to if they want to kind of have a view of the world and, and relationships and well their sexual activity which reflects the actual reality what kind of inputs to their lives should they be recognizing of uh so i guess first if we're talking about how that gap is created i think that to a large degree it is created media simply because the media sends us so many messages about how so many different aspects of our lives are supposed to be. So it comes from places like lifestyle magazines, so men's mags. It comes from blogs and relationship experts. 
it comes from pornography as well with these images of, you know, what great sex looks like or what kind of pleasure you should expect to be able to produce in your partner. But one of the things that I'm most interested in is how we perpetuate these ideas ourselves in our own conversations through the kind of little white lies that we tell our friends about our sex lives, through the way that we we tend to tell the stories that are funny or that make us look cool or that make us align to the ideal in our particular circle of friends rather than talking about the problems that we're facing or about uh, or making jokes about our the ways in which we're not living up to the ideal rather than jokes about the ways in which we're living up to it yeah it's a bit like fashion really which changes over time you have you know the magazines pushing a few ideas as obviously positioning them as cool and then people spread the word about that and use it to sound cool themselves that they're more experimental, that they're having more interesting sex and so on. Yeah, I mean, God knows I've done so much of that myself in my life, particularly before I wrote the book. But, you know, even after that, or, I mean, I was in the UK last week and was chatting to a female friend about things that had been happening in her sex and relationships life. And she was telling me all of these kinds of great stories about a couple of guys she'd met and things that had happened. And I was listening and very excited by this. And I'm like, wow, this is so exciting. This is such a hot story. And then she pauses, though, and says, yeah, but these are like three things that have happened in the past year. This is not my everyday existence. Right, right. But I mean, perhaps she would not have said that if I wasn't the author of a book called The Sex Myth. (laughs) Right, right. Um... This is one of the things people expect that their friends and the people they're associating with are telling them, you know, the full story of their lives. But I think that happens very rarely today. Most people are doing some sort of bragging according to whatever they think the cultural norm is, um, as we've been discussing here. So it tends to be biased, whatever we're hearing all the time. And that's what makes it very difficult. So do you think that sex has become more important for our status over time? Ah, that's such a great question. I don't think it's become more important. I think it's become differently important. So one of the things I look at in the book is how sex has historically been tied to our status uh, throughout, not just in the present, but in the past as well. And uh, if you go back a few hundred years, um, sex was still tied to status then. It's just that then the way that you derived status was by being a good, upstanding moral citizen, which meant, you know, only having sex with people of the opposite gender, only having sex within marriage. In some cases, if we go back many centuries, only having sex at particular times of day. So there was this kind of social status tied up with that. Mm. And today, sex is still tied up with status. It's just that now it's tied up with um, being seen as being desirable, with being seen as being fun, with being seen as being, I think, competent and successful. And that competence thing probably applies more to men than it does to women, whether that's the competence in being being able to pick up women or competence in being able to you know, produce orgasms and be great at a variety of sex acts. Right. So this is basically you're saying that is really important to a lot of guys' egos and that it's possible that they are driven by that need for status or for validation of their ego rather than in the biological sex need for great sex and so on. Yeah, I think that that need for ego validation for both men and for women is as much part of the equation as the biological drive. Yeah. is One of the things that's changed is obviously there's a lot more information about our sex lives now. Yes. There's a lot of celebrities which are, you know, acting a lot more sexy 
uh, Miley Cyrus and, and, and so on. I think you looked at some of these examples in your, in your book. I can only see it's going to get more intense over time. That's the direction it seems to be going at the moment. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if you're aware of this. There's a, there's a, I just saw this at the weekend. That's why I'll bring it up. But um, I was watching TV on Channel 4. Not something I usually do. Um, but there's, uh, there was a show on called Naked Attraction. Have you heard of this? I did. When I was in the UK last week, one of my friends told me about it. And I didn't get a chance to watch the show because the people I was staying with didn't have access to it. But yeah, it's in, tell, tell them more about it. Sure. It's, it's just interesting that it's, it's got this far. I mean, five years ago, I definitely, you wouldn't have seen this on TV. It's like a dating show. So it's a, yeah, it's a show where it's a, it's a reality. Yeah. Where you look at people's bodies. Yeah, exactly. So basically you, you don't see anyone's head. In fact, the only thing you're shown at first is their private parts. So basically there'd be a guy there <laughs> and he sees like five girls, private parts, and there's a screen over the rest of them. And he has to eliminate one of the girls based on her pussy, basically. That's bizarre, isn't it? It is. And then it slowly reveals a bit more of the body. So it goes up obviously to the boobs and then he, you know, he ends up with one girl at the end uh, when he's seeing just, you know, the full, the full body and he's heard their voice as well. But yeah, I was just like, when I watched this, I was like, wow, I wonder where this is going to go to. What's going to come next? I'm sure a lot of people would, freak, well, the older generations and stuff would freak out looking at a show that's actually being possible. But I guess it just shows how public, I think, information is about our sexual lives now. And so I could see how that'd be. You could kind of see one of the girls who got sent off and actually more so the guy that I saw. I didn't, you know, I just watched one show, but there was the first guy who was put out. You can see like he's the first one who's rejected just because of his penis size or whatever. He looked distraught. He did not look happy. So you could imagine the impact on his social status is quite horrendous with all of his friends. and Oh, not even to his social status. I think to his sense of self, like how are you going to to think what is wrong with my penis or what is wrong with my pussy? (laughs) People reject me based on the side of it. I think that what I found most striking about the concept of that show is that to me, it just seems so different to the way in which we actually choose people that we want to date. As I went to say that, I thought maybe that's not so true now that we have online dating, we have things like Tinder, and then we have sexting attached to that. So maybe now some people really do pick uh, who they want to date based on the shape of their penis or based on the shape of their pussy. Although again, I can't, not having seen the show, I can't imagine how much of somebody's vulva you can see based on just a frontal view. What does that really tell you to be able to make an evaluation on? But I think that for most people, we, we pick who we're attracted to, not just on those things, but on the kind of whole, by looking at their entire physical body, by looking at the way yep. they act, by the tone of their voice, by who they are. And so the idea of picking somebody to date by looking at their genitals and then their breasts and then their bum and then their legs and then their face, it's, it's just so counter to the way that people really interact. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting concept to like play the devil's advocate. Maybe we are more yeah. sexual driven, biological driven people in, in general. And if we are given that information, which has always been hidden from us, maybe we will start making decisions based on that. I have to say for me personally, really, I could tell like there was some vaginas which looked more attractive than others, but I really wanted yeah. to see the girl's face. To, you know, <laughs> exactly. But yeah. maybe other guys have got like different views and that's going to change over time. It's just interesting how things are changing. Perhaps. 
But even on something like Tinder, I mean, even if you can sext afterwards and send pictures of your genitals or your sex organs, you're still starting with this, you know, picture of their face and their body and the little strap line where they talk about themselves. So there's still, I guess, more commonality to actually yeah, meeting yeah. someone in a bar. Than well, I don't know if you've seen studies attraction. on this, but I, just based on my experience and like some of the other guys I know, I think the whole thing about sexting is hyped. <laughs> A lot of the girls I talk to, they, they get a lot of dick pics sent, sent to them, for sure. Yeah. But in the vast majority of cases, they find it inappropriate, you know, just timing and whatever. Although maybe in the right context, they like it. But a lot of the time, it's uh, just n- not the right moment. So, you know, I wonder if that's the hype working on everyone. They're reading everywhere. We well, should be sexting, right? They're getting it wrong. They're doing it too early or whatever. That's true. I mean, I haven't done much sexting myself. I tried to sext my husband once when we were dating and it was pretty tame. I just sent a pretty picture of me in my bra and he what? didn't respond. That is offensive. So oh, my God. I said to him, I said to him, and this kind of fits with your story, though. I said to him, after my I sent you this really hot picture of myself. Why did you just ignore it? And he said, I was on a bus when I received it. It was oh, really embarrassing. Yeah, I guess so, that's, thank you. That's helpful uh, when I'm talking to guys in future. If, if this situation comes up, I'll, I'll, I'll think of that. It was embarrassing to pull out. To pull out your phone and then see. And it wasn't even that sexually explicit. Like it was like right. a Maxim photo or something. I guess not everyone thinks about how vulnerable <laughs> the person may be if they don't get a response from sending something like that out. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't personally feeling vulnerable. Right. I was mildly <laughs> offended in this scenario. But why did you not respond you off, to my yeah. sexy photo? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, exactly. so, so what do you think all of this means for men more specifically? Does it tend to push them towards a type of standard or identity more than others? I think the men are taught that the way that they engage with sex is tied to their sense of competence and it's tied to their sense of self-worth and their desirability. And that statistically speaking, the majority of men aren't hooking up constantly. The majority of men aren't even necessarily looking to hook up constantly. The story we're told about what it is to be a man is one that is based on the ability to pick up women. And that's not just about your desirability to women. It also becomes about your desirability to other men as oh, well. Right. Just in terms of uh, buddies hanging out, respect. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Your ability to pull women then feeds into that with buddies. Yeah. Yeah. Even if you're not the kind of man who necessarily aspires to that in your personal life. So like there was one guy I interviewed who I think was in his maybe mid to late 20s and he was quite conventionally attractive and had, he was definitely able to pull women, but he wasn't interested in, and he was also an athlete. Um, and so as an athlete, they were constantly talking about all the women that they pulled, but that wasn't a conversation that he was particularly interested in participating in. So because of the fact that he didn't want to share those stories in the locker room, uh, people just assumed that he wasn't getting any kind of action whatsoever. And of course, they would pull out the kind of slur that, oh, oh you must be gay, even though that should not be a slur. Yeah, yeah. So it's you know, just, just the silence these days uh, when the standard is bragging, basically, amongst men. So that's yes. pretty much the standard. And uh, um, I think it's going to go on for a long time. Bragging and so on is, is definitely something that I've, I see in most interactions with guys. Yeah. Did you see pockets of guys who are kind of moving away from that? Yeah, I did. Interestingly, in the fraternity that I visited in the US, and I don't think they're necessarily representative of all fraternities, but the guys in that group basically thought that it was kind of lame and pathetic 
to base your masculinity on how many women you could pull or in um, in your ability to joke and talk yeah. about that with other men. So there is a move away from that. And there is suddenly a move away from using homosexuality as a slur. I think that amongst most young men today, it's considered uncool to be homophobic. Right. I think with the millennials in general, that ends. And right, millennials is always not that really, I, I kind of, I find it kind of confusing how old they are, but like 20 to 35 year olds or something. Yeah. They tend to, any piece of media or anything I see with them, they seem to be a lot more, how would you say, socially accepting. And it's more of an, like an open view to, and non-judgmental towards uh, different sexual tendencies and so on, whatever they may be. Yeah. And I don't know where most of your listeners are based, but there's a study that I reference in the book that came out a few years ago in the UK, which found that 89% of young UK men had kissed uh, another guy at some point. Wow, that's huge. Yeah, it's huge. And not romantically in most of those cases, more in a kind of bantery kind of sense, like as a joke or as a way of, I guess, connecting with someone as a friend. Is that just kissing him on the, is that a French kiss or is that? On a- the lips, on the lips, but no tongue, I think. Okay. <laughs> really speaking, it was a really weird, but interesting weird, study. Yeah, that is a weird study. I lived in France for a while. I, I studied there and uh, guys in Marseille, they, they kiss on both cheeks. Yeah. And that's just the normal. And when I got there, I was an English guy. So I was, I, I see English as pretty conservative in comparison. And I was pretty freaked out when guys wanted to kiss me all the time. At that time, it wasn't, well, it wasn't something I was comfortable with. And I got comfortable with pretty quickly. And then in other countries like Argentina, man, if you, if you don't kiss the guy, it's considered that you may be gay because you have an issue with it. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting that, it, that England may have changed now. Because yeah. that sounds like a really high number. Well, that's good. Does it tend to create any specific anxieties or stress around sexuality for men? I think that the anxiety is firstly about the sense of self-worth and desirability. So do, and obviously I interview gay men as well, but I Mm. presume that most people who listen to your podcast are straight men. Yeah. So that's what I'm focusing on here. I think so. So this anxiety about self-worth and desirability of, am I able to get the girl? Um, Am I able to please the girl? Am I able to get her to do the things that I want her to do? And if I can't, what does that mean is wrong with me? Yeah. Um, So to look at this, kind of give some some examples. Some of it would be around the different sex acts and guys. So I I can tell you some of the anxieties I come across, like just to make clearer i don't know if you've got case studies or examples of some, some specific things to kind of bring the subject alive for instance just talking dirty with girls mm. uh, a lot of guys they're anxious about it they don't know how to do it and they feel pressured that they have to do it because it's spoken about probably sexting to a large extent as well i don't know if you came across examples in your work and in, in your research where there's specific topics which that are getting pressure around them where guys are getting more anxious so a couple of examples I can think of. Uh, one was a women's magazine article I came across early in my research, which looked at the use of Viagra amongst right. um, young men in their 20s. And um, this idea that young men who generally weren't at the at the age group where they would need Viagra or who didn't necessarily even experience a lot of erectile issues would be taking Viagra before they went out to make sure that they would be able to perform if they were to take a woman home. And that might be partly because of drugs and alcohol, but I think it's also attached to a desire to be good in bed. And another one that came to mind when you were talking about that was a guy interviewed who talked about being in high school and being in sex education. 
but the instructor would ask if there were any questions and the guys wouldn't be able to ask a question about how women's bodies worked because they felt like they had to act as mm. if they knew everything already. Right. I remember the guys saying, I would have really quite liked to ask how my girlfriend's vagina and vulva worked, <laughs> but I felt like I had to pretend I'd already had lots of sex, so I couldn't ask that question. Right, right. So, so that's unfortunate, like having to be experienced, yeah. basically. Yeah. Or interestingly, there was another guy I interviewed, and I think the story does end up in the book, who talked about hooking up with a girl he really, really liked for the first time. And it was his first time of being like really sexually intimate with somebody. It was a girl he'd liked for, I think, a year, and he was hooking up with her, and he had oral sex with her, and he was deliriously happy about this because it's really exciting to be able to hook up with someone who you really like. But he talked about feeling this kind of pressure, this internalized pressure that he was expected to still ask to have intercourse or to ask to have, you know, full sex, whatever you want to call it, even though he was perfectly happy with what he was doing. So there is this internalized pressure, I think, for really young men to always be seeking out intercourse, even if they might be just happy doing something else sexual. Yeah, yeah. Either to rack up the numbers or I guess that's mostly that social pressure from guys. But I think that that pressure is kind of internalized. So for that guy, it wasn't um, I need to push for sex so that I can go out and tell my mates about it afterwards. Right. It was I need to push for sex because I'm a guy and she's a girl and this is what she expects of me. Right. So it was also from the girl, like he felt like he wouldn't be seen as a man or yeah. you know, masculine if he didn't push for sex with the girl, but also he'd feel bad about himself. Like, oh, I'm not, yeah. I'm not a real man. Like I'm not doing what a man's supposed to do. Yeah. And I don't think it's, I mean, to some degree I found when I was looking at the research that women do expect men to push for sex, but that's not an expectation that women necessarily like. Mm. So it's not an expectation that guys should be trying to live up for too. It's more that women are socialized to expect men to push for sex almost as an irritant, which is not to say that women find sex irritating, but that when you're a teenage girl in particular, you're being taught that guys are only after one thing. And um, basically guys will do anything for sex. And this is, you know, in my experience and in the experience of so many other women who I know or have interviewed, this of course is not how guys are all the time. And so when women have encounters with you know, real flesh and blood men, uh, sometimes they can find that confusing. I, I heard that particularly from women who had higher sex drives than right. the men that they're in relationships with. Uh, but it's, it's a very kind of destructive expectation, this idea that guys always want sex and they want nothing but sex. And it's destructive for everybody involved. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I've noticed this over time. I moved more towards relationships and kind of having longer dates drawn out. Yeah. And a number of years ago, when I changed the focus onto other things in my life, and uh, I find a lot of the girls get insecure and ask why I haven't taken them home after a, a few dates. Because, again, and the, the, the kind of standard they're seeing is like they're expecting the guy to make a move the first time or at least the second time, which is, you know, what I used to do. Yeah. But, you know, when you lead it out to three or four dates, they're like, why is this guy even bothering to come and see me? <laughs> it's like he's not interested at all. <laughs> I think it's uh, pretty confusing for them because it doesn't fit with that standard that they've taken on board. Yeah. And of course, the issue there is that we need to kind of blow apart that standard rather than men need to make sure that they ask women to have sex with them in the first few dates. Yeah. Awesome. So what I'm always interested in from the state of this podcast is like, how can guys get more satisfied with their lives in this area, more fulfilled, happier with them? 
with all of the different pressures, the external pressures basically influencing guys and their identities today, how would you say it can detract from their lives in these ways, happiness, satisfaction, fulfillment? Well, I think that I guess probably the kind of obvious answer is that it makes people feel insecure that they're not living up to an ideal, whether that's the ideal they feel internally, so they feel that they're not desirable, they feel like they're not a real man, etc. whether they feel insecure about their relationships with their friends or whether they feel insecure about their relationships with women. Uh, so I think that that's the, the kind of main impact of this on men's lives. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. In terms of practical kind of takeaways for the, for the guys to uh, think about, as they go away from this, uh, what is useful for men to consider in order to ensure that sex contributes to the quality of their lives? Are there things about their standards, uh, their, their perceptions of what the norms are for them, what they should be doing can help if they put a bit of forward into them? I think that the main practical takeaways I would have is firstly to remember that if you're feeling insecure about your sex life, that a lot of people have a financial interest in keeping you insecure, whether that's because they're writing TV shows with outlandish plot lines that are accordingly more exciting for people to watch, even if they have nothing to do with people's actual lived experiences, or whether, I guess, in an even more practical sense, there are a lot of people out there who offer sex advice that is designed to inflame insecurities, that where the kind of underlying message will be, you're not a real man, but if you only do what I say, then you will be. So if you're feeling like your sex life isn't up to scratch in some way, or if you feel like that means that you're personally lacking, that's not necessarily because you are personally lacking. It's because there are people who want you to feel lacking so they can sell you things. I also think that I think you asked in one of the emails that we exchanged how you can tell if your sex life isn't serving you. And I think one point that I'd really want to drive home is that that's not about the particular type of sex life you have. It's not about whether you're having um, lots of sex or not. It's not about whether you have lots of partners or whether you're monogamous. It's not about whether you watch porn or if you don't watch porn. Mm. I think the warning sign is if your sex, if sex is a subject that's causing you a lot of personal anxiety, or if it's a subject that's making you feel angry towards other people. Mm. Um, because of that anxiety, whether that's making you angry towards women or to other men or to yourself, like that's a sign that something's wrong. Yeah, those are those are very good uh, signals. Yeah, to help guys to figure out if this is something that they should think about more about. Yeah. So, reading for your book, what I was thinking about. Um, so, if guys wanted to develop their own sexual standards mm. independently of the external pressures, like the things you're talking about, I mean, sex is basically embedded in everything around us today, right? So you've been talking about yeah. magazines, TV, movies, TV shows, movies, gurus, products, Viagra or any other product, clothes even, you know, every type of product pretty much has sex embedded in it to, to be sold these days. There's pretty much nothing that isn't used these days. But so how can guys go about developing their own sexual standard, which may potentially make them more fulfilled independently of these, all of these external pressures? It seems like quite a, a mountainous task, really. Yeah, it is a hugely mountainous task. It's a billion dollar question. And I think that the reason that it's a mountainous task is because, as I said at the beginning of our interview, humans are social animals. Mm. 
And um, that is the fact that we are influenced by the people around us and by the stories that are around us is something that is embedded into us as a species. Mm. So it's very difficult to entirely extract yourself from that. And I don't think that it's possible to ever create entirely your own perception of how sex or of how anything is supposed to be in isolation of other people. But I think that one practical thing that men could do is to be a little bit more honest with other men about their sex lives. And that doesn't necessarily mean needing to get really vulnerable and having a DNM, although that may work with your particular group of friends. It could just mean the next time that you're having a laugh about sex, that you have a laugh about something that doesn't make you look so cool alongside all of the things that do make you look cool. And then I think that opens up permission for the other men in your life to talk a bit more honestly about their sex lives. And then you're going to get a kind of more rounded, holistic picture of what other guys' sex lives look like, separate from those advertising and media messages. Right. I think think that's a great tip, like takeaway, just being more transparent. And as you said, being playful about it or self-deprecating humor is is an easier way to start, potentially. Would you suggest they could do that with girls too? Yeah, that's a great point because, you know, guys and girls are also friends with each other. And I joke about these things with my guy friends as much as I do with my girlfriends as well. And so, and, you know, even with, with women that you're dating, maybe in that case, you might want to have the conversation a little bit more seriously, but, but yeah, to be more honest, just all around. Yeah. Because there's a lot of power in sharing our, our real stories around sex. Well, absolutely. You isolated the key point there is like, when you have the courage to be transparent and honest, talk about reality as it is rather than creating this cover-up, then it gives other people courage to do it as well. So you start getting real feedback instead of this distorted, biased view, which everyone is kind of like throwing around between themselves, I think. So, you know, it just takes someone to start and you can be the one to start and it makes everyone feel better about giving you more accurate feedback so it helps you. Absolutely. And I know that both from my book and through a story I read in the New York Times last year where I shared some of my story that led me to write the book, I got so many emails from people, from men and women who read that article or who read the book and were like, thank you for saying this. I feel so much better knowing there are other people out there who are in the same boat. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for that. Okay. A few questions to round off. What are the best ways for people to connect with you and learn more about you and your work? Sure. So the best way to connect with me is to go to the website, thesexmyth.com, where you can find out more information about the book and about me and ways to kind of help create these more authentic conversations around sexuality. You can also find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Rachel Hills. You can find me on Instagram at Ms. Rachel Hills, that's M-S, Rachel Hills. And uh, you can find me on Facebook at Rachel Hills Writer. I, I also have a really, well, I think a really great mailing list. I don't spam people with promotions. Instead, I tell stories about these issues, mm. which is at tinyletter.com slash Rachel Hills. Cool. I haven't heard of that before. What's tinyletter.com? Is it some kind of... Tiny Letter is like a mailing list service, which, and the thing I love about it is it's called Tiny Letter, right? Rather than mailing list. So you treat it as a correspondence with real people rather than, hey, buy my things. Excellent. Excellent. All right. We'll put all of that in our our blog, all those references as usual also for people Mm -hmm. to look up if they didn't, if they couldn't figure out the URL or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Who besides yourself would you recommend for 
advice or knowledge in this area of life, dating, sex, relationships? Ah, this was a tough question for me because I avoid a lot of dating advice because I feel like it is designed Or to... knowledge. Yeah, or knowledge. Yeah. But I think, so three people who I really like, firstly, Michael Kimmel, the sociologist that yep. I recommended before. Mm -hmm. He has a really interesting book called Guyland, which really analyzes masculinity as a whole. But it, there's some really great stuff on sexuality in there. Um, and I think a lot of men will relate to the stories that he shares in that book. There's also another researcher I really like called Andrew P. Smiler. And he wrote a book called Challenging Casanova, which I mentioned in the book, in my book. Yep. But he also has another new book out, which I'm just looking up for us now while we're on the phone. Sorry, I only have Challenging Casanova for him. Anyway, the third person who I really like is a woman called Cindy Gallup, yep. who runs a website called Make Love Not Porn. And um, her entire mission is to make sex more transparent not in the same way that, say, Naked Attraction does, but just by showing people having sex in ways that are real, in ways that are varied. So there is, you know, it's not just all vanilla or loving or, or heterosexual. But also, because I went to a talk with her where she showed videos, they're also really sexy, those videos as well. So I think that it's, it's pornography that also kind of challenges the sex myth at the same so time. So it's pornography based on reality rather than pornography designed... Yeah, so it's real people videoing yep. themselves having sex. Awesome. But some of these people must have really great choreography and filming skills because it looks awesome. <laughs> because the videos that she showed yeah. did look good. So uh, I, I recommend that as something to look at and to see the ways in which people really are having sex. Thank you for that. Very interesting. I hadn't heard of that. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for all those references. And what would be your top three recommendations to guys starting from scratch without any prior knowledge to improve their dating life as fast as possible? I think one thing that makes dating really hard, both for men and for women, is that we're so often taught to, taught to see it as a game. And, you know, games are kind of, in most cases, they're kind of inherently oppositional. So you almost tend to see yourself in opposition to the people you're dating. And I think that's a really damaging idea. So to stop seeing sex and dating as a game. To remember that women are humans just like you and that they have their own insecurities and their own challenges and that sex and relationships aren't easy for women either. And I guess related to both of those, to ditch the whole battle of the sexist stuff because if you're a man who's attracted to and wants to date women, essentially you and women are in kind of fighting for the same thing together. You all want to have great sex and have great relationships. Yeah. It's difficult to fight something and, and team up with it at the same time to have great sex or whatever <laughs> fulfillment exactly. and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Makes it a bit of a conflict of interest or whatever. So Rachel, thank you so much uh, for your time today. Uh, it's been a very interesting chat. Thank you so much, Angel. Take control of your dating life today. Take one idea or one insight from today's episode and apply it today. Don't wait. Do it today. That's all it takes to change your life, step by step, episode by episode. Learn more about what I, Angel Donovan, and my team do at DatingSkillsReview.com. How we help men like you take control of their dating lives.